When I was in eighth grade, I was part of something at my church, Independent Bible Church in Martinsburg, West Virginia, called the Bible Quiz Team. Now, the Bible Quiz Team is as nerdy as it sounds, but it was an awesome experience for me because the Bible Quiz Team would memorize entire books of the Bible, specifically in the New Testament. And over the course of the year, you would memorize books of the Bible, and then at the end of the year, you would travel by bus somewhere in the country to take part in the national conference, where there was not only teaching throughout the week, there were the quiz competitions, but there were also other adjudication activities where people could lead a worship band, or they could preach if they were thinking about pursuing those things later on in life. And when I was in eighth grade, the books that we had to memorize was Galatians and Philippians. And it was during that time as an eighth grader, I'm memorizing Philippians, I'm memorizing Galatians. No, I can't recite those two books for you this morning. I wish I could. But when I think of verses in those two books, I can visualize specifically where they were on my memorization sheet. It's kind of weird how that works. But anyways, as I'm memorizing those books, that was the time in my life that God really struck me with the reality of what his word said. God's word, I was a Christian at the time, but God's word transformed from just things that I heard in songs and Awana verses that I had memorized, even though I'm glad that I went to Awana, it turned into God's book. I was able to understand the letters of the New Testament in all of their breath, all of their glory, and I saw them in a new light, and it made me passionate about God's word. I would read almost a letter every night before going to bed, just devouring the New Testament and just having my mind blown every evening. And it was during that time in eighth grade that I realized this is what I want to do with my life. This is what I want to do every day, every week. I want to be able to share with other people the power of what I'm seeing in God's word. And that was the first time in my life that I had the first inclination of someday being a pastor. The reason why I tell you this is because the following week, I go to my youth pastor, Lowell McDonald. I'm in eighth grade, and I say, Pastor Lowell, I really want to be a pastor someday. I'm going to be going to this national conference somewhere far away in a place called Cannon Beach, Oregon. No joke. And I'm wondering, I'm talking to Pastor Lowell, I'm wondering if you can help me preach a sermon. Teach me how to preach. Now, Pastor Law at this time, this church was a church of about 600. He was a youth pastor of almost 100 kids, and he was also, I didn't know it at the time, preparing in the early stages of planting a church of his own. He was an extremely busy man. And now an eighth grader is coming up to him saying, hey, pastor, can you help me learn how to preach? One of the best things that ever happened to me in my life is that that youth pastor at that moment said yes. He said, come to my office every Wednesday before youth group, and I'll help you learn how to prepare and teach a message. The first message that I preached was from Psalm 150. He let me teach it to the sixth grade Sunday school class on praising the Lord. He taught me how to break up a sermon. The way he taught me was hook, book, look, took, was the four words that he taught me. Hook the audience, point them to the book, show them how they can reflect on it, and then take them away with application to follow it. You still see those things in sermons today. 
after Pastor Lowell taught me those things and I went to that conference, later on in high school, I still had the desire to be a, youth, to be a pastor, maybe a youth pastor. And as I was a senior in high school, I had the chance to do an internship before graduating. And Pastor Mark, the senior pastor at IBC, he graciously said, sure, Stephen, a senior in high school, you can come and for the next spring semester, not only can you come and be an intern here at the church, but you can shadow me and the other pastors and you can come to our elder meetings that take place every week. I had a chance to look and absorb and see all of these faithful men around the elder board lead a local church while I was a senior in high school. I also think of Pastor Brad Haycock. He was the youth pastor that replaced Pastor Lowell after he went to plant a church in the role that he had in my life. I remember going to Moody Bible Institute in a place called Spokane, Washington. I had never heard of it before. And while there in Spokane, Washington, I had a chance my junior and senior year to preach for a pastor at a church called Valley Baptist Church in North Idaho, a pastor called Adam Harris. And I had a chance to be an intern even at that church, and I learned from him uh, how a pastor loves people and invests in people and visits people and calls people and comes to their bedside. All throughout my life, God has brought people into my story at the right time. I think of Pastor Adam. I think later of one of my professors, Dr. John McMath, who was with me during my time at Bayview, a Bible church in Idaho. The reason why I share all these things is to get across the point that no person exists in a vacuum. That when a pastor or a youth pastor comes, uh, anyone who is leading or serving, even you all here this morning, you are a product of the people that God has put into your life. For better or for worse, the spiritual maturity that you have in your life, just like any that I may have in my life, is not a result of just going to a seminary, or happening to read the right book, or happening to go to the right church. It's more than that. It's the person who recommended that book to you. It's that person who became your mentor at the church that you attended. One of the guys that I forgot was a pastor named Jim Tiefenthaler. I was attending a church at Graham, Washington for a couple years as well. And the pastor of that church, he prayed for me. He took an interest in me. He cared for me. He even gave me an opportunity to serve at the church where he was pastoring. Graham Emanuel Baptist Church. The reason why God has brought us here today is not just because we were wise in our own efforts. It's not just because we figured out the gospel in our own strength or that we were inherently mature, but that each and every one of us are the product of God's grace in bringing people in our lives to love us, to help us, to invest in us. I want you to think about maybe those people that may exist for you, those people in your past that had a spiritual impact on your life. The reason why I share all of this is because as we end our expository series in Colossians this morning, we are going to see Paul end his letter with the same emphasis on people that we are starting our sermon with. Turn to Colossians chapter 4. These last verses of Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18, are probably the kind of verses that you are tempted to skip over in your Bible reading. 
Just like we talked about at the beginning of our series in Colossians, we are now reading the outside of the envelope. We are reading the personal, practical details of this letter that was sent 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. And in these verses, as we come to the end of Colossians, instead of Paul giving this really powerful speech, uh, instead of Paul giving this really important point of application or some kind of exciting finale to send them away with, he ends his letter focusing on other Christians. This is going to be the longest chunk of text that we're going to work through in our entire series on Colossians. Because this large chunk of text is going to be Paul addressing people. People that you don't know. People that you may not even recognize when you read their names, or you may not even know how exactly to pronounce their names. But God in his wisdom, God in his graciousness, God decided that of all the things he wanted Graham Emanuel Baptist Church to know as a result of Colossians, including any other Christian who reads the book of Colossians, God decided that he wanted his people 2,000 years from now to know the names of these people. He wanted us in the church today to recognize that there were more people other than just Paul who were part of the work that he was doing in Colossae. In the same way, there are more people than just Stephen or Pastor Meredith or Pastor Jay or a new youth pastor or any of you. We are the product of the people that God has brought into our life to love and to shepherd us. And so as a result of that, as we work through this text this morning, we are going to get a picture of the church. We are going to see a point being made in what Paul is modeling and how he focuses on other people. And there are going to be three major takeaways that we are going to have from this end of Paul's letter as he is signing the back of the envelope, so to speak. And by looking at how Paul sees the church and at how Paul talks about other people, we also are going to better understand how we should see the church and our role in the church and our relationship with each other, both in this local church and in other local churches. So let's start with the first point. The first point is that the work of the church should be shared for encouragement. We're going to see that as you write that down from the first few verses that we see from Paul, starting in verse 7. As Paul concludes his letter, he writes in verse 7, he says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything that has taken place here. When Paul would write mail and send it to people, he wouldn't send it through the official mailing system of the Roman Empire. 
The reason for that was because the system was very untrustworthy. If you sent a letter through the Romans, it was probably going to be read, and it was probably going to be confiscated, and they would go after these Christians who are working to spread Christianity. As a result, when Paul would send his letters, he would not just send a letter, he would send people with the letter, not only to personally deliver it, but to also give news of what was happening with Paul. The two people that Paul sends as he delivers this letter to the Colossians is a man named Tychicus and a man named Onesimus. Tychicus is a person who appears sporadically all throughout the New Testament. One of the first places where we see him is Acts chapter 20, verse 4. He traveled along with Paul and some other ministers of the gospel through Greece. We see that in Acts chapter 20. We see also that not only was Tychicus the deliverer of the letter to the Colossians, but he was also sent by Paul to deliver a similar, similar letter to the Ephesians. Notice how he's described both in Ephesians and Colossians. He's called a beloved brother and a faithful, that word is minister that you see in Ephesians. If you look in Colossians, uh, you will see the same thing in the ESV, that he is a faithful minister. That word there is slave. He is a faithful fellow slave alongside the work that Paul and the others are doing. We see in Titus, Titus was someone who was sent by Paul to plant a church in the island of Crete. And he tells Titus in his letter to Titus that he's going to send Tychicus to him. And that together they're, both, they're, they're supposed to travel and to meet Paul. We see even at the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy is his last letter, that Tychicus is going to be sent to Ephesus. Paul saw Ephesus as one of the most important churches in his ministry, and he trusts Tychicus with that. The reason why this is important is because we have to remember that Paul is in prison. He can't go anywhere. He can't deliver the letter to the Colossians himself. He has to rely on other people in order to deliver that message for him. Tychicus is going to be one of those people. The second person who's going to be sent with this letter to the Colossians is going to be a man named Onesimus. Onesimus is how we say that name. I hope he doesn't mind that I pick on him a little bit. Pastor Meredith says that every time he reads it, he says Onesimus every time he reads that word. And you know what? After he told me that, every time I was looking at this passage, I kept saying Onesimus because of Pastor Meredith. So he kind of incepted my mind. But Onesimus is how we say that name. And look at how Onesimus is described. He is sent along with Tychicus by Paul to deliver this letter. In verse 9, Paul says, And with Tychicus, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Notice how Paul describes Onesimus slightly differently from Tychicus. They're both faithful brothers, but Tychicus is also described as a faithful slave. Onesimus is not called a faithful slave. There's a reason why Paul probably did that. As best as we can tell, the likely reason why Paul omitted the word slave for Onesimus is because Onesimus was literally a slave. 
Not only that, he was a runaway slave. And his master from whom he ran away was a Colossian. His name was Philemon. We see in Philemon, specifically verse 10 in Philemon, we see that this letter that Paul is writing to Philemon uh, is being delivered by Onesimus, Philemon's runaway slave. That the letter of Philemon is being sent along with the letter to Colossians. Tychicus has the Colossian scroll in his hands, and Onesimus, the runaway slave, has the Philemon scroll in his hand to return it to one of the Christians in Colossae named Philemon. Because of that, as we end our expository series in Colossians, we would not be able to do Colossians justice without following it with an expository series on Philemon. Our next expository series is going to be on Paul's letter to Philemon. In fact, many of the commentaries on Colossians includes Philemon with it. It's only 25 verses. See that text up there in the tiny little print? That's the entire letter. We're going to be in it for five weeks. Our youth pastor candidate, he's going to preach one of the sermons in Philemon. We have to include Philemon with Colossians because the two letters were delivered together and with similar purposes. But after that, we're going to be in the Old Testament. And there's, a, and there's a book of the Old Testament, just so you know, that I've been working on since I was in Idaho. And I've been very excited about this expository series, and you will find out what it is the first Sunday in March. So hang on tight, but we have been, I have been working on this for a long time, and I'm very excited about our Old Testament book. We're going to be in there probably for around two years. So hang on. But Philemon is going to be what we start with next week. So if you're looking for something to read this week, I encourage you to read Philemon. But as we reflect on these two people that Paul sends, Tychicus and Onesimus, look at the purpose statement for why Paul is sending them. We see this again in verse 8. He says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul's desire, he didn't include this in his letter. He intended for Tychicus to share this personally. His desire was for a church that had never met him in Colossae to be spiritually encouraged to hear what God was doing in other local churches. We as Christians should be excited about what God is doing with other Christians in other like-minded local churches. We as Graham Emanuel Baptist Church should not see ourselves as an island. We should be aware of those other churches where the, where the gospel and God's word is being faithfully preached, and we should pray for those churches. We should look at updates on Facebook and celebrate with those churches when God is blessing those churches. When we support missionaries, like when we send students to YWAM or the Martins, who are our missionaries that serve in Senegal, it is good for us to be encouraged by hearing what they are doing. I challenge us as a church family to not just be excited and encouraged by anything that may happen within these walls, but to see Graham Emanuel Baptist Church as simply one member of the larger body of Christ that Christ is building all over the world, and to seek out and to look for and to celebrate those stories of how God is working through fellow Christians, even if you have never met them. Because if you do that, you're doing the same thing that Paul and the Colossians are doing. 
We should see ourselves as a church, as one that seeks to be encouraged by what other people are doing and being used for by the Lord in other churches. I mentioned to you Pastor Adam just a couple of minutes ago. He was a pastor that I worked with in North Idaho. There are families who used to attend this church who now go to his church. And we have that fellowship. We can celebrate and encourage each other because even though we're in different locations, we know each other and we know that we are doing the same work but in different places. Be praying for other like-minded churches. And if there's churches that are not like-minded, pray that they become like-minded by God opening and convicting their minds and hearts to preach his word. Let's now go to the second point. The second point is this, that the work of the church consists of many members. We're going to see this starting in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, is what Paul says. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. He's the same Epaphras that was mentioned at the beginning of the letter, by the way. Paul says that he is struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Verse 13, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demos. The second point is that the work of the church consists of many members. If Paul had seen himself as a lone wolf in ministry, if he had seen his role as an apostle as something that only he should be doing with no help from any, any of us or any of those around him, we would not have had the letter to the Colossians. Because Paul, as he wrote that letter, he's in chains under house arrest in Rome. That letter would have never have been able to be delivered to the Colossians or to many of the other churches across the known world had Paul not understood that part of his role as an apostle was to shepherd and encourage other people in the faith and to work alongside them. That's why Paul, as he ends his letter, he chooses not to focus on himself. Tychicus will share details that will soon be forgotten in history, but the things that Paul once preserved in his letter is the names of the people who are working alongside him. Paul recognizes that the work of the church is a work that Christ does, through many members of the body. There are so many great stories behind all these people. Aristarchus is mentioned in Acts chapter 27, verse 2. We see that he is the one who sailed with Paul. He even becomes shipwrecked with Paul. We see in Acts chapter 19, verse 29, he's part of the mob that takes place in Ephesus, and he is persecuted alongside Paul. Aristarchus is also even called Paul's fellow prisoner. It seems like apparently as a result of preaching the gospel and working with Paul that Aristarchus may also have been imprisoned as a result of this. We don't know much about him, but we wouldn't have known him at all if Paul didn't choose to mention him and if Luke didn't choose to mention him in Acts. God wants us to know that the work of the church is a work that God does through many members. Paul then goes on and mentions Mark, there's such a dramatic story about Mark that's a sermon in and of itself. 
You may remember from some of the scriptures in Acts concerning Mark, specifically in Acts chapter 12, verse 13, verse 15. I encourage you to go back and read the story of Mark in, Acts, uh, in, in these uh, chapters of Acts. That Mark was initially working with Paul and Barnabas, and then he abandons them. And Paul becomes so upset by this that he doesn't want to work with Mark again, and Barnabas has to work with Mark, and Paul decides to take Silas. But by the time we get to his letter to the Colossians, and even by the time we see Paul about to be executed, we see that he's been restored with Mark, that Mark is now working with Paul again. We see that Luke is mentioned. He's the one that writes the Gospel of Luke and Acts. This is the one verse where he's described as a physician. And we see Demos. He was working Paul with Paul at this time. By the time we get to 2 Timothy, we see in 2 Timothy 4.10 that Demos has fallen away, that he's no longer serving with Paul because he has decided to love the world more than the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are all important names to remember, not because necessarily the importance of each individual person, but because of the collective importance of how they were used together to begin the church that has lasted for 2,000 years and that is benefiting even us today. It wasn't just Paul. It wasn't just the 12 disciples. It was all of the men and women even in some cases that they were investing in and working alongside to fulfill the Great Commission. We must understand the same as a church, that a church is more than just its senior pastor. It's more than just its elder board. God uses a church of members, of faithful attenders and members of the body of Christ who are coming together to worship and to work for the Lord for the sake of fulfilling his great commission. Involve other people. Pray for other people. Seek community in the local church. And then finally, the third point, before we get to the big idea, is that as much as we talk about collectivism and unity and the fact that we should be encouraged by each other, none of that matters unless we are united under the same thing, which has to be the gospel. An ecumenical mindset is a mindset where Catholics and Protestants attempt to come together and pretend as if they're the same. That's not what Paul is promoting here. Those are two different ideologies based on two different foundations. One foundation is Jesus Christ and God's word. The other is human tradition and human priests and a pope. They are not the same. That's not what's being promoted here. In the same way, other churches who don't teach God's word or who promote something other than the gospel, we shouldn't pretend as if we are the same as them. We must have unity as a congregation with other congregations who are united under the gospel. We see this in many different situations as we get near the end of the letter. We see that Paul is giving instructions in verse 15 to a church that is in Laodicea, a church that is meeting in the house of a woman named Nympha. It doesn't mean that she was the pastor of the church or even an elder of the church. She was likely a widow who had inherited a large enough house where a local congregation could be gathered. Paul had never met these people either, yet he greets them. He seeks unity with them. Archippus, uh, in verse 17, Paul encourages him, another person that he hasn't met yet, to fulfill the ministry that has been received in the Lord. Verse 16, I skipped that verse. Paul also says that when this letter has been read among you, the Colossians, Paul says that the same letter should also be read in the nearby city of Laodicea. 
I think we have a map that shows that Colossians, uh, or Colossae, was not the major city in the area, but it was right next to the large major city. Uh, forgive some of my scribbles up there. I did my best. Next to Laodicea in another city called Hierapolis. The point was, as much as this letter was a personal letter to the Colossians, the purpose was always for the New Testament letters to be shared among other like-minded churches. That after they had read their letter, they were supposed to then give that letter to the Laodiceans. And the Laodiceans were then supposed to share that letter with the church at Hierapolis, and at Ephesus, and at Philadelphia, and so on and so on. Sometimes people try to convince you that the books of the New Testament were decided by some council in like 325 AD. That is mistaken. Those books of the Bible were not decided at that council. They were confirmed and written down officially at that council. Because the books of the Bible were decided by the churches of the first century who received this and understood that it came from the apostles and then shared it with other churches to be unified under what they saw as God's word being sent through these letters. Local churches are not united by a denomination. You can be part of a denomination and not have fellowship with other churches in that that denomination. Churches are not united just by having the same historical tradition. The only thing that truly unites local congregations is a shared commitment to God's word. That is what unites churches together. Churches that share that same commitment with us are churches that we are united with in the body of Christ. And what we see modeled here from Paul shows that and proves that, that the uniting factor by which he wants to gather these local cities and congregations together is by them having a common sharing of the word of God. All of this leads us to our big idea As we close, we can put that on the screen now, that churches should collectively encourage each other, that God does desire for churches to be united, to be collective, to be plural, not singular, to be working together as a congregation, and to be working and praying for and fellowshipping alongside other like-minded congregations for the sake of encouraging one another, for lifting each other up. Graham Emanuel Baptist Church can't do this alone. God is not going to change the spiritual landscape of Western Washington just because of Graham Emanuel Baptist Church. If he does so, it's going to be because there's going to be 15 or 20 more churches in the next 30 years that share the same commitment to the word. And we need to be praying for that. As we read the last words of Colossians, I would be remiss if we didn't read the very last words as we end our series. Paul says in verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Timothy was probably writing down the letter. Paul here at the end writes the final verse to give a personal touch. And he ends by saying, remember my chains and grace be with you. As we remember that we're supposed to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to praise him and to serve him as our Lord and master. Let's remember the ways that people are doing that across the world who are suffering and in chains as a result. And let's continue the work that God has been doing here at Graham Emanuel, partly through Colossians, to praise and glorify God by walking in a manner worthy of him. And that's Colossians. Pray with me.